0: Ladies and gentlemen, I want to welcome you all to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. We use the term, it's constitutional or not, and we say, this is unconstitutional or this is totally constitutional. But is it? And most of us don't know what that means. Our guest is Dr. Edwin Vera, the author of many landmark books and articles constitutional homeland security, a nation in arms, three rights, 13 words, pieces of eight, the monetary powers and disabilities of the United States Constitution, the sword and sovereignty, the constitutional principles of the militia of the several states, crash maker, how to dethrone the judiciary. Dr. Edwin Vera is one of the greatest minds who understands the inner workings of the entire United States Constitution. He has a command of understanding history in a way that few do walking the earth today. He is one of the most important legal minds regarding the reality and application of the U.S. Constitution. He's been practicing law for over 50 years. He's also won several important cases at the U.S. Supreme Court. Abood Versus Detroit Board of Education, Chicago Teachers Union versus Hudson, Communications Workers of America versus Beck. I can think of nobody better than this brilliant mind in the realm, Dr. Edwin Vera. Welcome to its rainmaking time. Thank you, Kim. I think the first thing I want to ask you, I heard you on a show today and it was wonderful. and And then I spent the rest of the entire day because I was so upset what is going on trying to educate myself and better understand the distinctions that you made and how it is that so many governors so many talking heads and people in, in in literally in politics and in with governmental authority don't understand the constitution and are not bringing up some of the keys that you brought up in that show so uh, one of them i wanted to start with to open the whole show today you said and I'm saying the essence of this, obviously not verbatim, but basically that there's this distinction between an invasion and immigration. In other words, this is not, uh, this, what is happening is not happening under peace. It's happening under war. Did I get it right, what you said and what you explained?
1: Well, uh, the result of this massive influx of illegal aliens is a situation of inflation, excuse me, a situation of invasion as opposed to immigration, which under the Constitution justifies the states which are affected, primarily Texas in this particular instance, to engage in war. That's the exact terminology of the Constitution. They engage in war when they are actually invaded, or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. Now, that's a different situation from immigration because immigration is a process that is legally controlled and moderated and directed. And it's done pursuant to statutes enacted by Congress under Congress's power to create rules for naturalization. Constitution talks about a uniform rule of naturalization, which is the process by which Congress sets parameters for entry into the country, qualification for citizenship, and so forth and so on. And the present illegal immigration influx is operating completely outside of that, or to a very large extent to outside outside of that. So we have a situation that has two separate constitutional provisions which really don't overlap. They are uh, extreme contradictions. I mean, the the legal immigration situation is an extreme contradiction of the actual invasion situation that's going on now. And what this (laughs) creates is a dichotomy of authority. But Congress has power over the questions of naturalization, that is legal immigration and individuals qualifying for eventual membership in the body politic by becoming actual citizens. That's one side of this problem. And then the other side, and that's left to Congress. That's Congress's authority. And if Congress exercises that authority properly, the states are required to conform to whatever Congress's statutory directions are. The situation that we're dealing with in Texas, and actually in other places in the country, is this, immigration, is this invasion situation, which, under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, is within the domain of the states. Now, let me go back a second, because you look at some history here. If we look at the time of the Declaration of Independence, when the 13 colonies declared their independence, declared themselves to be free and independent states that were absolved of all allegiance to Britain and severed the political connections between themselves and Great Britain, they declaimed that they would have full power as free and independent states and there's a list of things to levy war and conclude peace, contract alliances, and so forth and so on. Notice that the first one of those is to levy war. That's because ultimately the power to engage in war or to levy war is necessary to the maintenance of your own political system. If you are subject to incursions or attacks and you cannot respond, then obviously the life cycle of your political system is going to be very short indeed. So there's a primary function recognized: the Declaration of Independence. Now, in the Constitution, there's a residual of that power left to the state because in the Constitution, Congress is given the power to declare war. It's interesting that Congress has not given an explicit power to wage war or to engage in war. The uh, involvement in warfare at that level is left, as it were, to implication. But it's not left to implication in Article One, Section 10, Clause 3, because it says, No state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power, or engage in war unless actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will admit of delay. So this is the residual of that original power that was claimed in the Declaration of Independence by the free and independent states to levy war. Now the free and independent states, or the sovereign states, as it were, because they made themselves part of this federal union, these sovereign states, without the consent of Congress, can engage in war when actually invaded or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. And that's a separate power from any power that Congress has with respect to immigration, quite obviously, because immigration and invasion are two different concepts entirely.
0: So what is immigration? So what is I'm sorry, before you go on, just to keep the audience clear, Make the distinction, what do you define as an invasion and what did the Constitution define as an invasion, if there is any?
1: Well, if we look at the terms of in, uh, invasion and how they were defined at the time, they are talking about any ingress into a particular territory by people without a right to do so who are then seeking to obtain some kind of rights or benefits at the expense of the individuals who live in that territory. It doesn't necessarily require an army to constitute an invasion. If we think of the most famous examples that most people learn of in high school, for instance, the barbarian invasions, especially the Great barbarian invasion in AD 406, I think it was. These were huge movements of masses of people from the Germanic tribes primarily. Sometimes they involved actual fighting, warfare with the Roman authorities. In many instances, they didn't. And those Germanic tribes were seeking to gain land, economic advantage within the territories of the late Roman empire. And this was, to a very large extent, going to be done at the expense of the Roman people or otherwise other peoples who were living under the Roman Empire in those territories. So these tribes were attempting to gain economic advantage, and then slowly but surely they gained certain social advantages. Eventually they gained political advantages, and the whole Roman Empire was changed. It fell, as the expression goes and something else took its place some other political structures took its place took its place eventually the feudal structures of the early middle ages so what you're looking at with an invasion could be doesn't have to be militarily based doesn't necessarily have to be violent but it's an ingress into a territory by a large number of people who do not have a right to enter that territory and are entering the territory for the purpose of seeking usually initially economic and then social and political advantages by staying there, all right? That's what we have now. Now the interesting thing about this mass uh, alien immigration into the country, it's from all over the world. It's not simply from Mexico, Central America, uh, South America, people are coming from all over the world. And apparently it's a coordinated activity because you can't come from Africa or Kazakhstan or wherever unless somebody is arranging and paying for transportation, air transportation, transportation over the ocean, whatever it is, have large numbers of Chinese apparently coming into this country on that route. And so there's a great deal of, what should we say, international involvement in this, whether by foreign countries, or whether by uh, NGOs, non-governmental organizations, or by criminal enterprises, because we know that much of the present illegal immigration is being facilitated by the drug cartels for the purpose of expanding their traffic in drugs, human trafficking, trafficking in children, so forth, and so on, all these criminal enterprises. And those cartels have been shown clearly to be involved in um, essentially mutual aid operations with the government of Communist China. It's not unlikely that parts of the government of Mexico may be surreptitiously involved in this. Certainly they're not doing a tremendous amount to stop it. So there are all sorts of implications here that it's not simply a matter of people, in a sense, randomly coming as illegal aliens.
0: Why does the Supreme Court have any jurisdiction over this matter? Why did Jonathan Turley, attorney attorney Jonathan Turley, say that the government you know typically the government has to take care of this situation and he thinks that the courts aren't going to like this why why are we going to court over or why is anybody going to court over something like this didn't doesn't the constitution give the authority of the states to to manage something like this
1: directly well if you read the actual language of the constitution it says that the states may engage in war when actually invaded or in such imminent danger will not not admit of delay, without the consent of Congress. And if they don't need the consent of Congress, then obviously they aren't subject to the dissent of Congress. So no statute that Congress could possibly enact could interfere with this. Now, of course, the question that always arises is someone will claim, well, there are limitations on this state power. Maybe it's really not an invasion. Maybe it's something else. Maybe there are uh, what they call supremacy clause limitations, preemption limitations. I don't give much credit to that at all. But these kinds of arguments can be made and they get into the courts. Because essentially almost anyone can file a complaint in a case, right? You don't have to have a clear cut logical argument necessarily to file paperwork. And then it goes through the judicial process.
0: But in the meantime, what happens?
1: Well, in the meantime, it depends. In in the meantime, it depends on what, in this case, the state of Texas is going to do. Governor Abbott has pretty much taken the position that Article one, Section 10, Clause three applies, that there is an invasion of the state of Texas. And as a result of that, the state can take what he calls self-defensive measures. Now, I would just point out that engaging in war goes beyond self-defense.
0: Explain that because it's very things por- that you- two, two things before you go into the I want you to explain that. But before you go there, because you're kind of fast like a starship. So I got to pull you back a little bit for the audience. The question here is, you know, it, this is not just about self-defense, but you had said on an earlier show, and I listened to you very carefully, that there's a distinction between war and peacetime activity with regard to these actions
1: well, that's exactly, stated in this, that's exactly stated in this provision. It says no state shall, without the consent of Congress, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace. That's the first thing. All right? There's a distinction between war and peace written into this section of the Constitution. And no state without the consent of Congress may engage in war unless actually invaded. So there are conditions on this. And what we have now is a situation I've said that really fits the definition of invasion. And therefore, the states can engage in war and engaging in war is more than simply self-defense. For instance, if an individual is accosted in a parking lot by an assailant waving a tire iron, going to attack him, the individual draws his concealed carry firearm, the assailant drops his tire iron and runs away. That's an example of self-defense. If the victim now chases down the assailant and tries to arrest him, that goes beyond self-defense. Now the victim is attempting to act in the capacity of some kind of law enforcement officer. And that may be justified because if an individual sees a felony in progress under the common law, he may arrest the perpetrator. But it's different from self-defense. So the concept of engaging in war goes beyond, we don't know how far beyond in this case it might go, but it certainly goes beyond simple self-defense executed by the state of Texas. Now, what the people in opposition to this are going to say is, well, number one, anything that has to do with the border, anything that has to do with immigration, whether legal or illegal, is within the exclusive purview of Congress. Clearly false, because we have a provision here in the Constitution which puts it within the power of the state without the consent of Congress. Congress has nothing to do with this if there's an actual invasion. Then, number two, they may say, you go to Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, that says the United States shall protect all states against invasion. All right? The United States shall protect each of the several states against invasion. And some people say, well, that provision now precludes the states from acting on their own when they're invaded. Well, no, because one provision of the Constitution doesn't override another provision of the Constitution. They both have to be interpreted and applied simultaneously in a rational fashion. So it could be that the United States would aid Texas in repelling this invasion, while at the same time, Texas would be taking steps to repel the invasion. They'd be working in concert, in coordination. What's actually happening here is that the government of the United States, primarily this Biden administration, Department of Homeland Security, is not protecting the states against invasion. Quite the opposite. The Biden administration is not executing the laws that Congress has passed with respect to immigration, which, if they were applied, would keep very large numbers of these people out of the country. And the Biden administration is attempting to stop the states from using their own reserved power, Texas in particular, to engage in war when actually invaded. So we have a situation where, rather than these two complementary provisions of the Constitution Being executed in coordination, one is being used by the Biden administration to frustrate the other one. Now, that's a constitutional impossibility. One cannot use one constitutional provision to defeat another constitutional provision. Now, we also have a provision that deals with the way Congress might respond to this. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 Congress has the power to call forth the militia. To execute the laws of the union, well, some of those laws would be the immigration laws, and Congress apparently has not done that. To suppress insurrections, well, let's leave insurrections aside, or to repel invasions.
0: And why isn't that happening? Why isn't the repelling of people coming in unauthorized? Obviously, it it appears as if they do have the authorization to come in from somewhere. They're being shipped in.
1: No, no, they have no legal authorization at all. This is a political matter. The Democratic Party apparently wants this to happen. And some portion of the Republican Party apparently wants this to happen. But whatever political, economic, or other reasons they may have in mind, I leave that aside. Someone else can think about that. But the provisions in the Constitution that would speak directly to and deal with this huge influx of illegal immigrants are not being applied at the level of the government of the United States. Congress is not doing it, even though there are immigration laws. Congress is not doing it, even though Congress could call forth the militia to repel invasions. The executive branch is not doing it, even though the United States has a duty to protect each state against invasion, which leaves as the only possible alternative, the power of the states to engage in war when actually invaded, which is what Texas through their uh, the, uh, the governor is attempting to do. So we have a a situation here where there is a direct conflict between two levels of the federal system, the government of the United States and primarily uh, the executive branch, the Biden administration, which has these responsibilities and is refusing to fulfill them. And the states, primarily Texas being on the front lines of this, which has the power And is attempting to fulfill it. Now the question becomes how are they supposed to do it? And here we run into uh, uh, further complications because Texas, of course, has been talking and using, talking about and using the National Guard to put up these razor wire barriers. And the National Guard interestingly enough, is actually something that has arisen out of this very same provision. No state shall, without the consent of Congress, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace. The National Guard in each of the states are the troops that the states may keep in time of peace with the consent of Congress. Congress has consented in various statutes from 1903 subsequent to that. To allow the states to maintain these forces called the National Guard in time of peace. And the condition of that in these statutes is that the National Guard, the Army National Guard, Air Force National Guard, become and are adjuncts of the regular Army and Air Force. Now, that tells you right away the National Guard can't be a militia because in the Constitution, the militia and the regular Army are separate concepts entirely, they come under separate provisions. Of article one section eight and actually of article two section two clause one the president is commander in chief of army and navy on the one hand commander chief of the militia of the several states on the other hand they're separate so national guard is not a militia and that raises this interesting problem which some people have been proposing who are opposed to what texas is doing they say well all that the national government needs to do that uh, the biden administration needs to do is to quote unquote federalize the National Guard, that is take control of the National Guard away from Texas, away from the governor who was the commander-in-chief in the Texas situation. And therefore they will remove from Texas the ability to function actually, the National Guard will be told to stand down. And that actually happened if we look back in the days of segregation at President Eisenhower called up the National Guard when, who was it? Abel, uh, Orville Forbes in Arkansas, stood in the schoolhouse door. And then there was a later episode of um, the governor of Mississippi, George Wallace, standing in the schoolhouse door. Seems to me that there would, uh, President Kennedy also in, involved uh, the National Guard there. So it's clear from the National Guard statutes that there is some authority for the executive branch of the national government to take control of the National Guard away from the states. Now, of course, this does not take away from the states the rest of their militia. The state of Texas has a large, what they call reserve militia. It's probably several million people, the way they define the membership.
0: Please define for us what a militia is, because, you know, you've been in this over 50 years and I, and most of us have no clue what the militia is. I really think, again, I'm sorry you have to define this and explain it again, but we need you to.
1: Well, basically, the militia is every able bodied citizen depends on which state you're in. In Virginia, it's from 16 to 55 who can be called to service. Uh, from paramilitary service on down to other kinds of service in specific areas. So in most cases, the specific areas are repel invasions, suppress insurrections, help in the execution of the laws. There's a police function, right? In Virginia, the militia also deals with natural disasters or man-made disasters, industrial accidents, that type of thing. So that's very typical if we look at the level at the U.S. Constitution, those are the three primary, actually total functions for which Congress can call forth the militia, execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, repel invasions. The militia are state institutions. They are not institutions of the national government. Congress can call them into the employment of the national government for those three reasons and those three reasons only, at which point the militia of the several states that are called forth become subject to the president as their commander-in-chief. That's Article Two, Section 2, Clause 1. Otherwise, the militia of the several states are state institutions, and they are subject to control, I think in every instance, by the governor of their particular states. So Governor Abbott in Texas... He has control of the national government, of uh, the National Guard, unless the National Guard were somehow federalized, unless Biden could come up with some reason for doing that. But whatever Biden does, Abbott would remain commander in chief of the militia of Texas unless the militia were called forth by Congress. But if Congress called forth the militia, with respect to the situation we're talking about now, it could only be to repel invasions, not to facilitate invasions, because the Constitution specifically uses the words repel invasions. So it wouldn't do Congress much good to call up the militia of Texas, because then Congress would have to have the militia of Texas going to the border of Texas and Mexico to repel the invasion. Obviously, if Abbott calls up the militia in Texas, then he would authorize and essentially order them to repel the invasion within the state of Texas, and that would be entirely a matter of the Texas militia law. So we have all these complications that are built in, and we don't know which way, primarily the executive branch, uh, that is the Biden administration, is going to jump. Because it's very unlikely to my mind that Congress will pass a new statute dealing with this. They already have enough statutes on the books to deal with this.
0: Even if they did. I mean, this is one of the scary things about government. You can just keep passing laws and statutes and legislation until people are tied up and the Constitution won't mean anything anymore. Am I right or am I wrong?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, Constitution means what it means, no matter what these politicians may do, and you have to sort it out. But what kind of statutes could Congress pass? Well, Congress could pass another statute dealing with immigration, but that is not going to in any way interfere with the power of the states to engage in war when actually invaded, because a statute of Congress cannot override another provision of the Constitution. Congress could pass a statute dealing with calling forth the militia from texas and other states to repel invasions of illegal immigrants but that would do the very thing that the biden administration is refusing to do
0: but what about border control can border control come at at the request of the biden administration or the order of the biden or any administration and cut
1: those wires they're supposed to be controlling the border now and the 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 opposite of border control, I guess you would say, is some form of incursion or, at a larger scale, invasion. So, supposedly, under the Constitution, this is one of the aspects of Congress's power to deal with immigration: is to control access to the border from by, from foreigners. Right? Under what circumstances are foreigners is going to be allowed to control enter this country? Ultimately, to seek. Naturalization as citizens. Well, Congress has passed those statutes. They're there. The problem is that the executive branch, the Biden administration, is refusing to enforce them. Texas is coming along and saying, under those conditions, we now have uh, essentially an emergency situation where we're being actually invaded. And as a result, we have a primary constitutional authority. To engage in war, whatever that may entail. At a minimum, it's putting up barbed wire and and arresting people who may somehow slip through who are illegally in the country. It might go further than that. They might they, they might they might engage in military operations, let's say within Texas, against the cartels. For heaven's sake, right? There are armed members of the cartels that are participating in this illegal immigration process also bring in drugs and human smuggling and all the rest of that. And obviously as part of engaging in war against this invasion, the Texas authorities could engage in military or paramilitary operations against the cartels. So we don't know how far this is going to go. Well, that's the what I'm asking is- you.
0: That's what I'm asking. I'm asking you if the border control is sent in en masse by the, by the government, okay, to cut the wires in Texas, what authority does Abbott have to stop that too?
1: Well, he the, he certainly has the authority, which is what he's doing now, as they're saying, if the and, and the and the border patrol people are not cutting the wires, but assume that they did. The Texas people have already said, well, we'll just put up more wire. They can cut as much wire as they want, and we will continue to put up more wire. Uh, the problem here is that the that the border patrol has certain authority with respect to the border, and there's no way to stop them from doing that. But the difficulty is what they're doing is insufficient to deal with the invasion because they're hamstrung by the Biden administration's limitations on them. And that's where Texas comes in and says, well, we're not, we are now going to deal with the invasion problem. And we hope that what the Border Patrol people will do is stand down or stand out of the way or whatever, cooperate with us in that sense. And let us perform our constitutional function when, in fact, the Border Patrol are not being allowed to perform their statutory function. So now we get into the question of how does all this play out?
0: Yes, I'm very worried about that, and so are millions of people worried about it. Well,
1: that's right. So it's already gone at one stage to the Supreme Court of the United States because there was an injunction entered into against the Border Patrol people to keep them away from the razor wire operation. And that goes up to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court rules 5 to 4 that they're not going to allow that injunction to continue.
0: Why, do they, have, why do they have this standing? Here's my question. Dr. Vera, why does the Supreme Court have the standing to override what happens in the state? Why?
1: Well, that's the interesting question, right? And the argument that's given by the proponents of uh, judicial supremacy is, well, every one of these constitutional questions is open to the Supreme Court to decide And that's simply the way we've always operated. Now, of course, then the question becomes they can make whatever decisions they want, and to what extent is the state of Texas going to abide by it? But let's look at what's actually happened and try to maybe predict the future here. This case goes up to the Supreme Court on a request to maintain this injunction. They don't decide the merits of the case. They don't decide whether Texas is right and it can control the border or whether Texas is wrong and somehow the border must remain open according to the Biden administration's uh, misuse of the immigration laws. The problem with this opinion, or the problem with this decision, is they didn't give us opinion. There's no opinion. We don't know what it was they considered, and why it was they refused to extend the injunction and just send the case back for further, further litigation in the Fifth Circuit.
0: Do they have? Now, do they have? Do a, they have to let us, the people of the United States, know what what they actually judged and what their deci- where their decision came from and what they decided upon? Do they have well, to let us know? It would be know? nice
1: if they did because that would not only help us but it would help the lower courts to know which, which which direction to go in. But if we look at this simply from the point principles of an injunction, to get an injunction, you have to establish a number of things, and the primary ones are first that there is a public interest. that injunction. And then secondly, that the facts are on your side. Circumstances have shown that you're entitled to have that kind of relief. And thirdly, that when the case is finally decided, you have a likelihood of prevailing on the merits. That is your right as respect of the law. Well, the facts are pretty clear. There's an invasion going on. The public interest is pretty clear that we don't want an invasion of hundreds of thousands and ultimately millions of unvetted foreigners into this country. So it seems to boil down to the third issue. Does Texas have the clear right of prevailing on the merits when the merits of the case are decided? And so the thing that uh, worries me is that maybe what the Supreme Court is signaling here, because people love to look at signals coming out of the Supreme Court, is that the Supreme Court doesn't believe that Texas is going to prevail on the merits. And the question is, why would that be true? Maybe this, and uh, Professor Jonathan Turley, who's a, a very astute law professor, said today, early in the morning, at least I saw him this morning, that he thought that the Supreme Court or the courts in general might say that, well, there's really not an actual invasion here.
0: Right. Right. Exactly. I don't think
1: that's true. I think yeah. the facts say that this looks like the barbarian invasions of uh, you know 460 A.D. or whenever. Uh, very, very clear to that uh, uh, that that kind of parallel. But then I also heard Professor Dershowitz, former Professor Dershowitz, Alan Dershowitz from Harvard, and he said, "Well, it's a matter of the supremacy clause." What is that? And I said, and, "Well, I, that that the Constitution is supreme over." the statutes, constitutions, and judicial decisions of the states. Difficulty here is we're not dealing with a statute or constitution or judicial decision of the states. We're dealing with a constitutional provision of the Constitution of the United States, which retains for the states certain powers. And there is no supremacy of one provision of the Constitution over another provision of the Constitution. The power of Congress with respect to immigration is not supreme over the power of the states to protect themselves against invasion. And in fact, if we look at the authority or the duty of the United States to protect the states against invasion, that is essentially coincident with the power of the states to protect themselves against invasion. And so we would say if there are any two provisions in the constitution that relate to each other directly, they are what? Complementary, not contradictory. So I think Professor Dershowitz may be saying something along the lines of thinking, at least something along the lines that if the Supreme Court simply says that the power of Congress over immigration is superior to the power of the states to engage in war when invaded, that that's the supremacy aspect, that we have to follow the Supreme Court, even if the Supreme Court is obviously, patently wrong, as I think it would be in this particular case, and it may be signaling to us that it's going to move in that direction. That is perhaps even more dangerous than this invasion that's going on. Explain the danger of this. Well, because people are going to lose at least half of the country. We're talking about 25 governors, I think, now, of supporting Governor Abbott. All right, they're all Republican governors. Fine. So it's a political divide, among other things. But it's also a divide based on the nature of the Constitution in protecting the states versus foreign interlopers, uh, the problem of separation of powers between the national government and the state governments, the question of this concept of judicial supremacy that anything the judiciary says, everyone has to accept as constitutional, even though it's patently not constitutional. So You're going to have a divide of this country pretty much 50-50 on all of those issues caused by this particular problem. And the Supreme Court is not going to settle or mitigate that divide, apparently. It's going to exacerbate it So now we will have divisions between the states and the national government, and between the states and the judiciary, and between some states and other states, the you know, the blue states versus the red states, the ones that will support Texas and the ones that will not. Well, you look at this, and this is a very vociferous, if you will, situation. I mean, all of these fractures in the legal and political structure. How are they going to be resolved? Well, we have no idea. What if the Supreme Court says to Texas, and this funny gets there, no, you can't do this? And they say it on the basis of some obviously incorrect interpretation of the Constitution. This isn't an invasion, which is factually wrong. Congress's power over immigration is superior to the state's power of self-protection under Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. And the vast mass of people, including Texas, in the in the so-called red state, say no, say no. And Texas simply says, following the line of Thomas Jefferson, Andrew Jackson, and Abraham Lincoln, we in Texas do not intend to accede to this decision. We will continue to use whatever forces we have, whether it's our National Guard, whether it's our reserve militia, whether it's our Texas Rangers and other police forces, to control access across this border. We're going to continue to do that. Well, the Supreme Court has no direct way of enforcing some decision against Texas. I don't know, maybe they could hold Governor Abbott in contempt or something, but there are all sorts of other officials that would take his place under those circumstances. What then would the Biden administration do to try to enforce the decision of the Supreme Court? Well, one thing that people have been suggesting, some of what I would call the wide eyed radicals, well, the Biden administration couldn't send the army down there to prevent Texas from doing that, to enforce the laws. Problem, there's something called the Posse Comitatus Act, which says the army cannot be used to enforce the laws of the United States. We don't want to have what's called martial law in this country. So that seems to be off the table But what happens if the Biden administration just did it? I mean, the Biden administration is not following the Constitution with respect to its obligation to protect the states against invasion. It very well might use the army to try to prevent Texas from exercising any authority down there, even though the posse comitatus statute said that that couldn't be done. Well, then you have another complicated problem. I mean, if if the Supreme Court wants to straighten this thing out, It's going to have to recognize that there actually is a power that the states have to engage in war when actually being invaded. This is an invasion. And the real problem is that the Biden administration is not enforcing either the naturalization laws, the immigration laws passed by Congress, the statutes, or abiding by the duty of the United States to protect the states against invasion. Period. And then leave that to the Biden administration to figure out how the administration is going to comply with the Constitution while Texas is controlling the border the way it's doing now. If it doesn't do that, one of the things that I see, and to me it's a very disquieting possibility, is the loss by a very large segment of the population of this country of any further confidence in the Supreme Court of the United States, in fact, the whole judicial system. It's one thing to lose confidence in the president. It's one thing to lose confidence in representatives and senators in Congress. They're all politicians. The judicial system is not supposed to be made up of politicians or making political decisions. It's supposed to be making constitutional decisions based on rational interpretations of the Constitution. If the population looks at some decisions, the Supreme Court says, no, this is a political decision. This is not justified by the Constitution. Now the judiciary is dropped into that hopper of distrust and disrespect in which all politicians in this country now find themselves. What then will be left in terms of constitutional government in the sense of people having confidence that the constitution can actually be enforced in their favor? And what will be the consequence if they decide that isn't true? If we look back in 1860, and I want to turn this thing upside down. That was the provision of the Southern secessionists. They took the position that once the Lincoln administration came into power, the Constitution would no longer be interpreted in the way that they thought it ought to be interpreted, at least to protect slavery as it existed in the slave states. And their only alternative, they thought, Was to secede from the Union, which of course led to the bloody Civil War, right? So, this may be even a more uh, dangerous situation because at the time of the uh, Lincoln administration coming in, there was a belief that the Supreme Court, at least, was not unfavorable to the provisions of the Constitution, which some people said supported slavery, the fugitive slave law, for instance, that there were people in Congress in the courts who were favorable to the southern position. Those people left Congress and left the courts to side with the Confederacy. So I don't think there was a split that was quite as uh, uh, comprehensive then. Nonetheless, what did it lead to? So we could be looking at something that, you know, uh, changing certain aspects of it because we don't have a clear territorial separation between slave states and non-slave states. We're talking about the you know, red states and blue states and so forth and so on. But there are clear separations within those states, politically at least. And heaven knows what would be the consequence of this. So the Biden administration, not I don't think the, the, Texas and Governor Abbott are playing with fire here. Because what they're doing is clearly within a rational interpretation of Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3. And they 're doing it because of the exigencies of the circumstances that neither Congress nor the executive branch of government is enforcing uh, the immigration laws properly. the problem really the problem really arises what is the Biden administration going to do?
0: I have a question about governors uh, I, I heard some governors i don 't remember the names i 'm sorry I was so so focused on this all day long in so many different areas. But some governors said that they were going to give orders for their national guard to go help Texas. Now, what about that scenario where all oh, of a Christy sudden the Loma, national? Uh, yes, Chris, you know that's right.
1: Right, was one. Maybe she's the only one. I don't know. Talk about. Talk heard. about. That. Well, all right. Let, let's, let's take an example that we all know of. Uh, There's a natural disaster, a hurricane, tornado, flood, whatever it might be in some state. And the governors of other states dispatch parts of their National Guard that have particular skills to aid in the disaster relief in this other state. That happens pretty often. Right. Right. Nobody seems to have a problem with that occurring. This is just an extension of that concept. Now, I can't see how unless the Biden administration came in and said, well, we're going to federalize these National Guard units throughout the country or maybe North Dakota the the states that have talked about aiding Texas. We're going to federalize those that there would be some constitutional argument against the state governors dispatching some of their National Guard. What people if they to did that? Texas.
0: What if the government? Well, does well that's
1: that. A, that, that's we're back to the original problem. We're back to the original problem of whether the Biden administration could take step after step after step to prevent the immigration laws of this country from being enforced either by the national government, by the executive branch or by the state governments. And that's the major question. Can we have a situation where here are the laws passed by Congress? They would, to a large extent, if enforced, ameliorate this invasion situation. The President of the United States has the constitutional duty to take care that the laws be faithfully executed, exact quote, Article 2, Section 3. He takes an oath, a very compendious oath in Article 1, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 7, to follow the Constitution. I mean, one has to read that particular oath and see how extensive it is. He says, I do solemnly swear or affirm that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That's the presidential oath. Most extensive oath there is in the Constitution. He's not doing it. It's clear he's not doing it. He's not executing faithfully or at all. Many are through the Department of Homeland Security. They're not doing it. That's, they're subject to his control. The immigration laws of the United States or Texas wouldn't be taking the steps that Texas is taking. So we come back to the Biden administration and I would think, I would hope, that that would be part of some kind of Supreme Court determination saying, well, the problem that we have here is a failure on the part of one branch of this government to enforce the laws that have been written by another branch of this government to the detriment of the states when the states are supposed to be protected by the United States against invasion. End of discussion. States can now take the action they take until we finally see that the executive branch is enforcing the immigration laws.
0: You know what this reminds now, me that of? Would be
1: inter- that would be an interesting opinion if they wrote that.
0: This reminds me of an abusive relationship. <laughs> It does because it's like the state here is the victim of this activity and this intent and this orchestration and the minute this state steps up and draws a line in the sand and says no more it continues in other words it exacerbates in other words you can't make a boundary you can't say no more and my understanding again i'm I, i'm nowhere near your universe of of comprehension and um high level understanding of every meticulous detail of the constitution but my understanding at a base level i thought i assumed and i think millions of americans assume that that document that we can fall back on it for matters. Something should be like something like this, don't you think? The whole thing is being tested. This
1: is a test. This is a test. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. And in, in a sense, we, we're going to be looking at which side blinks, for more than one side. Which side blinks first? I don't think Congress is involved in this at all, because I don't think they're going to pass some new statute. They don't need to pass some new statute. It's. The Biden administration going to blink and actually come forward and start executing these immigration laws properly? And I wonder if that's possible. Now I have another question: Is the question. state of Texas going to blink, or is the Supreme Court going to blink?
0: But wait, let's just say I want to take you into another scenario. Let us suppose that the Biden administration—again, this could be called any administration. It's just that we're in this one right now. All right,
1: right? The Biden administration,
0: yeah, whoever it is, the Biden administration could say, we recognize this is an executive branch of government. It's a constitutional duty. What can we do for you, Governor Abbott? Now, if that was done, what would it look like? Take us into a scenario where the executive branch gets it, cooperates, and works in concert to stop this invasion at the border in Texas. What would it look like? Give us an example.
1: Well, the first thing is the Border Patrol people would enforce the immigration laws to the letter. All right, so we wouldn't have any of these, um, what shall I say, Uh, slippery situations in the interstices of the law. They would enforce the law to the letter. And secondly, where they needed more assistance, manpower, if you will, Texas would cooperate with them. There'd be coordinated effort, concerted action. And I imagine as well, Texas would go forward because I think the Biden administration probably is not prepared to do it with increasing the wall or other barriers. They had had barriers in the water or whatever that would further limit the ability of the illegal immigrants to find their way into Texas surreptitiously. And the Biden administration, whatever the the administration, the administration would look at it and say, fine, you have these other programs, do them. Supplement what we're doing with the Border Patrol until finally the government of the United States can take over these programs that involve barriers, walls or other barriers, because ultimately that's what we want to have happen. Once we cut off the aspect of invasion, then we're back to plain immigration law. And that is going to be something that will be enforced by the national government. But right now, we're in this crisis situation. There aren't enough Border Patrol people to do it. The national government is not prepared to do what under the Trump administration, I guess, they were trying to do and build sufficient barriers, physical barriers. So Texas could come in and provide more personnel and provide the the, the provision. of uh, some barriers, or at least in those areas that were most affected. And we cut down significantly on the number of people that came in. And then, probably as well, one would hope that they use more of the Texas uh, law enforcement people to deal with the cartel aspect of this. Because that's one thing that has to be ruthlessly suppressed. And we're not talking about essentially, in a sense, innocent. Uh, you know, immigrants. People are coming here. They don't really know what they're doing, other than they know they're not coming in legally, right? They're not criminally minded in that sense. The cartels, of course, are, and they have to be suppressed with as much. Can uh, we go you know, back to the Can be brought to bear on them.
0: Can we go back to the logistics for a moment? I really want to take you back to the logistics. I want to just flush out a little bit more with you. If the executive branch of government cooperates, gets it and sends help or empowerment or stops resisting and threatening and whatever else is going on, what other kinds of help would they send? Would they send men and women in the National Guard? Would they send the militia of different states? How would it look if the executive branch of government were to facilitate and help Texas put a stop to this invasion as an example of the first state in which there was its full empowerment?
1: Well, I don't think they need to do any more than allow Texas to use its National Guard as the supplementary force. You forces. really think Let's there's enough people
0: in the National Guard to stop this? It seems pretty extensive.
1: Well, you have to see. Before you start calling up Excess force may have all sorts of logistical problems. Money has to be expended simply. You don't want to call up more forces than are necessary. So someone has to sit down. I mean, This is like Pentagon planning. Someone has to sit down and say, here are the parameters of the invasion. Here's what we have now. What more do we need in terms of physical resources? What more do we need in terms of personnel? What kind of personnel are they going to be? the ones on the front lines, the ones who are in logistics, the ones who are doing these other things at the second and third and fourth levels of the operation. Where are we going to get them? We can't get them from the army directly because of the posse comitatus limitation, perhaps. So we can get them out of the Texas National Guard. Maybe we can call on the National Guards of some other states that would be willing to participate, get the governors of those states willing to participate. Maybe we could call on Texas to mobilize members of its reserve militia, the people in the militia outside of the National Guard. There were probably, well, in Virginia, there were 4 million of those people. That was a calculation I made a couple of years ago that would be eligible uh, for that kind of service. That's
0: amazing. Texas
1: is probably 7 or 8 million. Well, you don't need 7 or 8 million. You might need 20,000. 15, 20,000. Call upon volunteers who have particular kinds of skills. You're simply going to pay them some kind of reasonable compensation and pass us an executive order or something else that says if they leave their employment as a result of this volunteering or draft, if you will, the employers cannot fire them, have to take them back so that their jobs are going to be secure.
0: Now, this, of I don't course, have is. Any problem it, in, wait a minute, in wait a minute. That out. Hold one second. You mean the executive order? In Texas. Now we're speaking Texas. Texas. Okay, very good. Just want to right. make that clear.
1: Okay. Te- Texas co- Texas would call up, the governor would call up some people. and We want people in this area, this area, this area, this area to volunteer. And we're going to say, if you volunteer for this service, you're going to get some kind of payment and benefits. And under this executive order, we're saying that your employers cannot fire you or penalize you in some way because you have had to serve three months or five months, whatever would be It depends about like rotation. These people aren't going to stay there forever, right? This uh, amount of time they are going to be precluded from penalizing you or discriminating against you when you come back to your jobs. That I don't think is a problem. And I think most of the employers in Texas would be perfectly willing to say, absolutely. We're going to go along with that. We wouldn't even need necessarily your executive order, but we'll have it anyway. We'd go along because we want the border secured. And how else are we going to do it? And the same thing could be true of of certain contingents coming out of the militia or the National Guard of other states. And, you know, Christine Nome already said well, she'd be willing to do it. So there's one right there.
0: Right. Let's talk about Christine Nome. Now, I think she said I, I, I don't remember if this is exact, but I think I remember hearing her say she'd be happy to bring extra wire if next if necessary. <laughs> where do people get these wires? I mean, where do they come from? Honestly. Well, they buy them. I know, but I mean, this is hundreds of miles. This isn't this hundreds of miles of, of wire?
1: Well, whatever it is, apparently they're capable of paying for it. I, I, would, I mean, really, if I were the governor of Texas and, and I'm buying this wire, at some point, I'd send a bill to the Department of Homeland Security and Said I'm doing your job for you. You have to at least reimburse me for the wire that I put That's on.
0: a very good idea. And then we have an
1: interesting court case, <laughs> right? As to who was really responsible for the cost. Uh, but obviously, at the present time, uh, it's probably coming out of the Texas budget somewhere. Uh, and they're talking about 25 other governors. So you could imagine that there might be some discretionary funding in, in the militia budgets or whatever in these states that they could disperse to Texas for these logistical purposes. And we I mean, know there's discretionary budgets. Equipment. Just look at the they CAFR. That's, that's a good they one. They need to be able to have some kind of housing for them, even if it's intense. Maybe they need to have some kind of medical care for people who are injured on the job. All, you know, there's an old saying, logistics isn't everything but everything depends upon logistics.
0: I like that saying.
1: It's one thing to say we're going to send 5,000 members of the National Guard to the border and then forget about all of the things that are necessary to support them in that activity.
0: All right, now let's talk about one other thing. Tell me, is it constitutional for border control to be ordered to cut the wires that were just put up to defend the state of Texas as an example. Is that okay?
1: No, I don't believe that is because what is that doing? That clearly is interfering with Texas's ability to defend itself under Article ten, Section uh Article one, Section Ten, Clause Three. And whatever the authority the Border Patrol has, it's statutory. They're a statutory creature. And, and they explain, can't exercise that. explain that. Authority in explain such a way to that the to audience.
0: Hold on, hold on, please. Explain to the audience the distinction between a statutory instrument of law and the constitutional. I mean, what's the distinction? You know it, but explain it to us.
1: Well, if you look in the Constitution, you don't find anything dealing with the Border Patrol. Border Patrol is not created by the Constitution, the Border Patrol is created pursuant to, ultimately, Congress's power over immigration. And Congress's authority to, in the necessary and proper clause to take whatever actions are necessary and proper to effectuate this immigration power that they have. Fine. So they create a statutory agency called the Border Patrol. Well, fine. And they give it certain authority. Well, fine. But neither that agency on its own nor the authority that Congress has given it can interdict, interfere with, a compromise, if you will, the exercise of constitutional powers by the states. Statutory authority is not superior to constitutional authority. Constitutional authority is always superior to statutory authority. And so statutorily created agencies have no power to in any way interfere with, uh, frustrate, prevent exercise of constitutional powers, in this case by the states. Now, one would hope that because they're supposedly all on the same page in terms of the ultimate goal of controlling the border, that the border patrol people, I think they probably think this way, they want to cooperate with the Texas authorities. Now they're getting orders from someone to go and cut that wire, which is inconsistent with the constitutional power of the state, to protect yourself against invasion. And one would think, one would hope that the Border Patrol people would simply drop the wire cutters and say, we're not going to do this. We're not going to engage in something that is clearly unconstitutional. This is one of the problems we've had in this country for a long time. That underlings, if you will, in the system that look at a situation and say, I shouldn't be doing this because the orders I'm getting are not lawful in one way or another. Maybe they violate a statute. Maybe they violate the Constitution. I'm refusing to obey. They don't do that. In 99999999 percent of the situations, they don't do that. They obey and hope that, well, this will be solved someplace later in a court decision or whatever. I can just go along to get along. And that's why slowly but surely this system becomes more and more corrupted because more of that activity takes place, is accepted as being, what shall we say? It'll you know, be handled the later. It's
0: the, it's the opinion. It'll, you know, people say, oh, it'll be handled later. It's
1: I don't have to. Yeah. Somebody else's, this is somebody else's responsibility. All right. And that's the difficulty. You get more and more corruption built into the system, more and more, action that is questionably legal or maybe clearly illegal, and things get to the point where we have them now, where we have the executive branch of the government in a direct conflict with the state government in a situation in which, according to the Constitution, they were both supposed to be cooperating for the protection of the state against illegal immigration. Now, how can you have that kind of concept, con- conflict? within the Constitution, where the relevant provisions of the Constitution support each other. Obviously, that's a problem. The Constitution isn't schizophrenic. It doesn't contradict itself.
0: What if this is a trial operation to see how far the Constitution can be made
1: nullified? What if? Well, you're talking there about bad faith on the part of people in the executive branch, Congress, maybe, maybe even in the courts. I
0: don't know. That these people I are just... willing to,
1: these people well, let these people are willing to do things that they know are unconstitutional to see how far they can push the situation, see what they can get away with. Ultimately, maybe to destroy the constitution entirely. And that's obviously a possibility, but one would say, well, initially. Let's give these people the benefit of the doubt and say they're simply misguided. Then if you look at poor Joseph Biden, I mean, the man obviously has some serious disabilities. I don't think anybody doubts that. So if he's making decisions here, they may not be highly informed decisions from any point of view, a little on the Constitution. And he may have advisors that aren't entirely reliable and don't understand the Constitution. Mm -hmm. He may be listening to some of these talking heads or his advisors may be, who are telling them that the immigration laws trump the Constitution or that the executive branch doesn't have to enforce the duty of the Constitu- uh, of the, uh, the United States to protect the states against invasion. and all sorts of possible explanations.
0: You know what, Dr. Vera? What's going on. You know what? Today, it just happens to be, I was reading on X today, that the statute of Thomas Jefferson that stood in New York City Hall for 187 years was removed.
1: Well, that's New York for you.
0: I mean, I'm shocked. I'm shocked.
1: Well, they wanted to do that, and I don't know whether they're going to get away with it at the University of Virginia, which, of course, was founded by Thomas Jefferson. And they want to start removing the references and so forth to Jefferson, in that university. Well, this is cultural Marxism, which is another question, right? It's a cultural revolution. We wanted to, They want to destroy all the remnants, important remnants of the history of this country, including the Founding Fathers, and ultimately you'll get to the Constitution itself. They're doing a pretty good job of that. Right? But at this point, if I were on the Supreme Court, I don't think that I would write an opinion necessarily imputing to anyone bad faith. I want this thing to be within the boundaries of the Constitution clearly and simply say, well, the executive branch is not doing what it's supposed to do. We have evidence that it's not executing the laws for whatever reason. And as a result of that, Texas is justified in doing what Texas is doing. And maybe I'd write something in my opinion saying, I would expect that the executive, after the executive branch re- reads this opinion, it would correct the you know the errors of its policy, so that we don't have to have more litigation. I think I would make that clear to them, and then we'd see what would happen. And if they're acting in good faith, well, then they would you know, follow that recommendation. If they were acting in bad faith, they'd continue to do what they're doing. And we'd end up with another case coming up to the Supreme court.
0: Don't you feel there's going to be another case going to come up and another state is going to be tested?
1: No, I think, I think if this case comes up out of Texas and the Supreme court rules in favor of Texas, all the other states will fall into line and go along with it.
0: Right. But I, I, I'm saying if it happens the other way,
1: Oh, yeah. It, opens, oh, it, up the, the it way, opens up the it opens up the floodgates. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If it happens the other way, because we already have 25 other states, governors who have said that they'd support Texas. Some other state will challenge the situation in such a way as to be able to create a, a slightly different legal question and get that into the judicial system as well. This will this will never stop. Until what Texas is doing has been recognized as legitimate, given the fact that the executive branch of government now is not doing what it's supposed to do. Once the executive branch gets back to doing what it's supposed to do, and Texas or other states no longer have to do what Texas is now doing, then this problem will go away. So it ultimately boils down to, unfortunately, a political problem, because I don't think Texas is going to change its policy, even if it's told to do it. And I don't think that it ought to change its policy because of the constitutional issue or the constitutional power it has. It's going to come back to whether the president administration or maybe a subsequent administration after the next election decides finally to execute the laws of the United States with respect to immigration as they are written. But but
0: what, for example, I was looking on a map today at the governors and where they were located that are taking a stand for Texas and what's going on, for constitutionality in full. And I was saying to a colleague of mine, why can't the other states stand up constitutionally? Why don't they come forward too? Isn't this a time to unite? Isn't this a time to really stand at the foundation of this country for the first time in I don't know how long This would be a great opportunity instead of to be divided just by the political faction. Talk about the factions. You said something in an earlier interview that was so profound about there was, and I can't remember who it was, but it was a very prominent person that talked about the danger of factions. Could you talk about that?
1: Well, political parties ultimately are factions. All right, they by hypothesis a party represents part only of a society. It may be a large part or maybe a small part. The founding fathers looked at factions as being extraordinarily dangerous to the body politic. Madison, Federalist Papers number 10, talks about factions and he defines a faction as a group within society, basically that's working for its own self-interest without concern for the general interests of society. We would call those things today special interest groups. They couldn't care less what burdens they impose on the rest of society, as long as they get theirs. Madison pointed out though, that a faction is not necessarily a minority of the population. A faction could be actually a majority of the population. A majority of the population could be misled politically to take action that it believes is in its own personal self-interest, even though that action hurts society as a whole. And actually, we see that in the concept of log rolling, which has been going on in Congress since whenever. You know what that is.
0: No, I don't know what a, that a is. A congressman I that comes he's
1: got a bill. He can't get this bill passed. He can't get a majority for his bill. Then he has another, there's another congressman. He has his own bill. He can't get a majority for his bill. And then there's maybe a third one. He has his bill. He can't get a majority. The three of them get together in the back room and they say, look, I'll support your bills and you support my bills. We will all support each other. And we'll agree to Maximize our votes in support of each of our bills, and that way we'll get all three of our bills passed, even though if those bills were enacted separately in some way, if they were looked at, at their own, on their own merits, none of them would pass. And so you get these situations where horrendously bad legislation is passed because of these backroom deals. I'll support you if you'll support me, even though we both know that our bills are not really in the public interest, but we're doing this for the special interest groups back in our home localities, right? Well, that's Madison's point about factions. You can have a faction that's composed of a lot a majority faction, which is composed of a lot of minority factions, and they all get together and agree to do uh, to support each other. And the result of that is harm to the society as a whole. And Washington, in his farewell address, pointed out the great danger of factions and political parties. People adhering to political parties without a concern for the effect of the policies of those parties on society as a whole. You know, the Soviet Union, that was called party-nost, party-mindedness. You were supposed to have your mind in conformity with the views, purposes, policies, morality, if you will, of the Communist Party. And if you didn't have partynost, there was something wrong with you. You were a potential danger to that political system. And that's actually what we have here today, to a large extent. There are some people who are just deluded, and they will go along with the Democratic Party, no matter what the Democratic Party does. Others will go along with the Republican Party, or no matter what the Republican Party does. Instead of looking at those parties and saying, wait a minute, some of the things they may be proposing are good, some are indifferent, some are bad, we are not going to simply follow the dictates of our parties because we want to be called Republicans or we want to be called Democrats, or we live in a particular city or area of the country where if you're not a Democrat or a Republican, you'd be looked down on. It's all a social. That's all nonsense. You can't run a country. On that basis, especially a country that has a limited government with a constitution that specifies the powers and disabilities of public officials. Because the the, the normal pressure in party politics is try to circumvent those limitations, try to get around the constitutional controls, try to exercise more power than you're entitled to do so that you can gain more access ultimately, to economic benefits. Use the government to enrich yourself. All right? And that's what we're seeing. The political parties more and more have divorced themselves from any, uh, how shall I put it, marriage to the Constitution. If I may use a divorce analogy. Right? They've been in divorce court so long that they are completely alienating the Constitution of the political parties. I'm talking about the Republicans and the Democrats. Neither one of those as parties stands forth as an actual constitutionalist party. They may support some provisions of the constitution. They may work in opposition to others, but across the board, they are not constitutionalist parties. So Washington has been proven right. Madison has been proven right. The founding fathers who were very concerned with factions and political parties have been proven right. And the question is, what the heck do you do about it now? Given that the parties have this lockdown step this lock control over the electoral system if you're not a republican or you're not a democrat forget running for public office you will never get anywhere
0: i want to go back to the part about the distinction between war and peace not just as a general concept but when you say that or when anybody says that that this invasion that's happening, which is the mass immigration that's coming into the country right now at the moment, we're focused on Texas. What makes this tantamount to war? There's There's no ammunition. There's no weapons. What makes this
1: in the condition of war? Well, you have to understand that it works the other way around. If you have an invasion, then the states can engage in war. That's You have to read what the Constitution actually says. It's not necessarily saying that an invasion is war. Okay,
0: that's the clarification actually, I was looking but for. But if
1: actually invaded, then you can use the tools of war. You can engage in war when actually invaded. So the invasion is the thing that triggers the use of this war power, if you will, without the consent of Congress. That's the sequence. And, and you have to read that provision. An invasion is not necessarily equivalent to a war, but if invasion occurs, the states can engage in war. They can use war powers. And what might war powers mean? Well, it might be calling up the militia or the National Guard to go and blockade the border arrest illegal immigrants, put up a wall. It might be engaging in military or paramilitary confrontation with armed drug cartels. Start adding this up, maybe with rogue elements of the Mexican government, the Mexican government in many instances apparently is under the control of these cartels. So they may be operating with the cartels. You can imagine all sorts of scenarios. But it's not necessary to say that an invasion is a war. It's only necessary to say that there is an invasion, and therefore the states can engage in the tactics of war, engage in war, without the consent of Congress.
0: That's the key. That's the key to the whole thing to me. That's the key.
1: And all you have to do, Kim, or you or anyone else, read the Constitution. Don't paraphrase it. Don't come up with other interpretations off the top of your head. Read the language of the Constitution. No state without the consent of Congress. Stop right there. Congress doesn't have the right to consent. Congress does not have the right to dissent. Congress does not have to agree. Congress has no power to disagree. That's the power. It's all in... In the state, the state shall do something without the consent of Congress. What is it the state can do when actually invaded? That's the condition. When actually invaded or in such imminent danger will not admit a delay. Under those conditions, the state can engage in war. Whatever war powers may be entailed. They may be police. They may be paramilitary. They may be military. They may be rounding up the illegal aliens within Texas and holding them in some kind of facility until they can be deported, whatever. You think of all the powers that have been used in warfare that might be applied to invasions of illegal aliens, those are within the authority of the states to use. And because this is an explicit power of the states in the Constitution, Congress cannot override it. The president cannot override it. The courts cannot override it. Now, the courts may make mistakes. The president may try to evade it. right? And that's the problem you always have in constitutional government. There will be people who will make mistakes. There will be people who will try to avoid constitutional limitations for their own political purposes. And we have to deal with that. Especially now, because if this comes in front of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court makes the blunder of saying that the states really can't exercise this power that it's all to be left in the hands of the executive branch refusing basically to enforce the immigration laws i think politically all hell is going to break loose in this country i
0: got to go i got to take you back to a question that's i've i think i've asked before but i'm not clear on the answer and it's not settling well in my spirit which is the following if in fact the supreme court is the final ruler on this matter. Who runs the country?
1: Well, there's the if. Is the if true? How does the Constitution begin? Who's responsible for establishing the Constitution? What are the first three words of the Constitution? It doesn't say the Supreme Court. It doesn't say we, the justices. It doesn't say Congress. It doesn't say the president. It doesn't even say... Actually, the states themselves, it says, we the people of the United States. This, of course, goes back to the Declaration of Independence. But it's the people that delegate just powers to the government. The government doesn't have powers on its own that it then uses against. Governments don't exist separate from the people. Governments are the creation of the people. The people created this thing called the Constitution and everything that it does. And ultimately... There is no supreme power within the Constitution as part of the government. Congress is not supreme. The president is not supreme. The states are not supreme. The Supreme Court is not supreme, no matter what name it seems to have. The people are supreme. So if you can imagine the situation, just imagine a situation where it's absolutely obvious. The Supreme Court comes up with a decision, says, we the justices have the right to declare war and to draft everyone in the country and to send them all to fight in uh, the Middle East or whatever, someplace. Indonesia, whatever. Would the people of the United States simply sit down and say, well, you're right. We're all going to put on uniforms and be shipped off to Indonesia. No, but this is a different scenario. That would necessarily cause a constitutional crisis, which would bring the Supreme Court. Well, don't
0: you think this will too? Look what's happening. I'm asking you something very specific. I'm asking you this. I'm going to reframe it. Does the Supreme Court have the constitutional authority to have the final word on what happens with state
1: powers. Not unless they're right.
0: How could the they Supreme be right? Court this
1: case, <laughs> no, if the Supreme Court decided this case. Well, no, if the Supreme Court decided the case and said, yes, the states have this power to engage in war when actually invaded, that's the situation. Texas is doing the right thing. End of discussion. We'd say, fine. They got it right. Anyone would get it right. They got it right. Excellent. If they say the opposite. What then happens? well, what did Jefferson say about this? What did Andrew Jackson say about this? What did Abraham Lincoln say about this? They said, well, the Supreme Court can make decisions in particular cases that apply to the particular litigants, but they are not those decisions are not supreme over the Constitution when they're wrong. The supreme Court makes decisions all the time that are wrong.
0: they are not infallible. Tell, tell the audience what happened in that one case
1: with you. I thought. <laughs> Oh, well, let me give you a general example. That's a great example. Decides a it, decides it, first case A, and then it decides later on B, and B is the opposite of A. Well, which one is right? Is it A or is it B? Is B right simply because it comes after A? Or are both of them potentially wrong because both of them can't be right? Well, now you've got a conundrum. There's no way to determine that which means that there cannot be a supremacy of the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court can actually reverse itself from time to time. I had a case, well, this is way back, 1970s, and it had two constitutional issues in it. I won the first one and lost the second one. And lots of people disagreed with the Supreme Court's opinion on the part that I lost. And so there was more litigation that went on for year after year after year. And in the course of that litigation, the Supreme Court was backing and filling and trying to, well, we'll make this little change and we'll do a little of this and we try to get around this problem, blah, 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 it went on for 41 years. Until finally, 41 years after this first decision, <laughs> there was another case, the Supreme Court finally threw up a and said, we can't do this. We were wrong in that original decision. We're reversing ourselves 41 years later. took 41 years for them to figure out I was right. But they did figure it out. 41 years. Now, during that 41 years, how much damage was done to all the people who were affected adversely by the first erroneous decision? And there was no accountability. There was no restoration. There was no uh, um, uh, whatever payback to these people who were harmed. But the Supreme Court simply changed its opinion, and said, we were wrong 41 years ago. Well, you were wrong 41 years ago. Maybe you'll be wrong again and again and again. You obviously can't be supreme in the sense that anything you say has to be accepted as constitutional gospel simply because you say it. It may be binding on the parties to the case. Jones versus Smith, decision comes out of the Supreme Court. Smith versus Smith wins. Jones loses. You can't go any further. There's no higher appeal. But that case does not apply to anyone else in the country because it would be an advisory opinion. Supreme Court recognized it can't give advisory opinions. So another case comes forward with Martin versus Struthers. And the case and, and Martin argues in that case, wait a minute, the Jones versus Smith case was wrong. And the Supreme Court says, you know, you're right. And now we're reversing Jones versus Smith in principle. We're not going to do anything for Jones and Smith, but reversing that. And we're coming to the opposite decision. And that could go on again and again and again. There's a famous case. People can look this up. Perry versus United States. Perry versus Tennessee. I think it's in volume 500 of the U.S. Supreme Court reports. First page as a footnote, footnote number one, is at that time, all the times that the Supreme Court had reversed itself. It goes on for like a page and a half in small type couple of hundred cases. And those were the ones that it, they explicitly say they're reversing themselves. There are many times when they reverse themselves as a practical matter by saying something like, well, that was an old opinion. It may not really apply today. Or the thinking of that opinion is not the way we think now or whatever. They will say something other than reverse. But they are, in fact, reversing. And the lawyers look at it and say, that's been reversed. We can't use that case anymore. All right. So if we look at the Supreme Court, it's a very unstable institution. And that has been proven by history. And it's also been proven by the fact that you have different groups of justices, different personnel all the time coming up. Some of them have political inclinations and they inculcate their opinions with those, or insinuate those political views into their opinions. Some of them are more or less competent as legal scholars, all sorts of problems. You look at a situation like that and say, well, we really can't rely on this. We have to rely on the Constitution and the good sense of whom? The people of the United States. Because people of the United States are the ultimate authors and the ultimate beneficiaries of this document. They're the ones that have to determine it, what it really means. Now they normally determine it by the electoral process. Oh, you don't like what Congress has done? You think that may be unconstitutional? Change the composition of Congress. Congress repeals a statute or writes a new one. Eventually you can change the composition of the courts. Some people retire, some people die, whatever. And then new justices and new judges in the lower courts are appointed and they change the tenor of the courts. Maybe they're more constitutional, maybe they're less. Maybe you made a mistake in appointing them, maybe you didn't. That goes on and on and on. But it has to be a recognition that there's no body in that constitutional structure that functions as the Oracle of Delphi. There is no uh, irrefutable Oracle that is essentially without the possibility of error. And if there is error significantly enough that the people of the Constitution, uh, people of the country, feel this palpably, and they say, wait a minute, you're really screwing things up here, which is the problem with immigration. What's the percentage of people in this country that are against immigration, Democrats as well as Republicans? Against illegal immigration. And the courts come out with some decision that is really contrary to that constitutional sense of the people. The courts are in trouble. This is the the, the Dred Scott case, Dred Scott versus Sanford case, when the Supreme Court said, Well, uh, you know, black people can never be citizens, even if they're free. Forget the slaves. Black people can never be citizens, they can never have these fundamental rights to the The Supreme Court to keep said guns.
0: that. Wait a minute. Oh, yes.
1: When? Oh, yes. When? This was 1850 something. Okay. Wow, that's Just before horrible. The Civil, this was one of the things that really ignited a tremendous amount of public ferment against the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had ruled that Congress could not prevent slavery in the territories. All right. Wow, if if that's a slave terrible. owner brought his slaves into the territories, Congress could not pass a statute outlawing slavery in the territories. So the northern people said, well, wait a minute. If that's the case, Congress probably can't outlaw slavery in the free states. The free states would not be free. They could, they could become slave states. The Southerners said, the slave states said, wait a minute, slaves are our property. Remember, slaves were considered to be property. And Congress, or the Supreme Court is saying that we can bring our property into the, into the uh territories and be protected. And the next thing was to bring that property into Free states. So you had a real division in the country because of the Dred Scott versus Sanford decision. And most historians look at that and say, oh, yes, that was one of the things that really hardened the political positions of the Northerners, especially the free state people, the abolitionists, versus the Southerners who had inclinations to secession. One of the great disasters in Supreme Court jurisprudence still looked at that way. Great mistake that was made. And a lot of people at and say, well, they couldn't say anything else because with the interpretation of the Constitution they were stuck, blah, 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 go on and on with that, whether they were right or wrong. But the fact that they said what they said was sufficient to throw, ga- to throw gasoline on this smoldering fire of abolitionism versus slavery. So we're looking at something here that's probably at the same level. And probably it's at a greater level because there probably was no necessity for secession. Things would have kind of trundled along, trundled along, even with Lincoln elected as a president, because Lincoln never proposed to abolish slavery. He wanted to maintain the union, and he essentially told the southern states, you can, co- you can keep this peculiar institution. I am not a threat to it. I want to maintain the integrity of the Union, and we worry about what we do with slavery. It'll die out naturally. They had all sorts of theories. But he was not a direct threat to it. The Southerners nonetheless nonetheless saw him as that. Led to secession. War, 600,000 people died. The South was devastated. Slavery was, of course, ended. They didn't preserve what they wanted. So we're looking at the same kind of situation here, except that illegal immigration, is in a sense a greater threat than slavery, there was no way that slavery was going to extend to the free states. And there was no way that slavery was going to extend to the entire rest of the territories that Congress eventually made into states. Slavery was going to remain in those southern states and perhaps eventually die out because it was economically unviable. It was not a situation that in and of itself could have destroyed the country. Massive illegal immigration potentially can destroy the country. So this is, in a sense, it's a worse situation now than 1860.
0: Where are these people going that are coming here? Like, where are they going? What are they doing? How do they live? How do they eat? Where do they sleep? How does it work?
1: Well, God knows. A lot of them are, in a sense, underground. They're getting whatever identification they're getting either surreptitiously or because the state government's localities give them this thing. Massachusetts is handing out, New York is handing out driver's licenses to them. Without- how is
0: this acceptable? How is this part acceptable? And I want to say one thing just on behalf of uh, my own sensibility on this. A part of me does feel bad for. Millions upon millions upon millions of immigrants that are being, I believe, misled and told things about when they come into the U.S., how it's all going to work out. And I feel they're being misled and lied to about how it's going to be. It's not going to be enough to be here in this type of inflation, in this type of economy economy and marketplace, and where most people are struggling and people are being relieved from their jobs and their businesses – and then to just be given a, a driver's license, which already is not okay, and a place to live, then what? Then what? What's the aftermath of this?
1: Well, number one, they're being misled. I think the vast majority are being misled about what they can get away with. I don't think any of them really don't understand that what they're doing is, is illegal, they're getting into this country illegally.
0: Well, they're being facilitated. Uh, so maybe, uh, maybe what if 60% don't think it's illegal if they're being facilitated well, they think they're going to get away with
1: it they think they're going to get away with it let's put it that way well if they're being All funded right? in illegally wait and we're going to get away with this because we've been given these political promises or whatever sanctuary cities whatever it is But
0: what if they're being they're being driven they're being facilitated they're obviously being funded on somehow people don't just show up in masses like this what i what i'm saying to you is because of the way it's being organized and facilitated it may look like to them, even though they're going to get resistance, that the the country, the government wants them here. Whoever they
1: are, oh, I think. Yeah, you know, I will think they're being sold that bill of goods, and they are really cannon fodder for someone else's.
0: That's what I desires
1: mean. to change this country in, a, in fundamental ways. Now, a lot of these these immigrants are going to discover that. Oh well, it's very difficult to work in advance economically. If you're basically working underground, you know if your if your documentation is false and you can't uh, get into move into this position or that position because you still are illegal, you're kind of off-budget operations. They have all sorts of problems, but from the perspective of the general welfare, what are they doing? They're undermining all sorts of parts of our legal social cultural system
0: who's undermining they what? may be
1: doing it because they're misled they may be doing it because they don't understand nonetheless they're doing it i get and the it country cannot be sustained on a constant influx of people the consequence of which is further and further erosion of these fundamental principles that sustain the entire system Understood. You're bringing people in this country that have no conception of the Western rule of law. They have no conception of real constitutional government. You think someone coming out of a country like Venezuela, with the background that they have had in the political process in Venezuela, really understands what a constitutional government is? No. No. So they come here and their instinct is to treat our government in the same way they treated or were treated. By the Venezuelan government. Oh, it's all a matter of corruption. It's all a matter of political manipulation. We don't have to obey the laws we don't want to obey if we're on the right side of the political party in control. It's all of that South American junta-style government. And we know where that leads. Total social instability, economic you know, if it is an economic chaos, it's certainly an in- insufficient economy to deal with your the, the own population. So here are all these people. They're economically uneducated. A lot of them have no idea what a real free market is like. They're politically uneducated. They never lived in a country with an actual constitutional government. They're willing to come into this country and break its laws and to continue to break its laws every day as an illegal entrant, right? And then to take whatever benefits they can, even though they're not entitled to them. Well you can't run a country where you have millions and millions of people operating on the basis of those what well, I would call anti principles principles contrary to basic law and morality right? And you know a lot of people say, "Well, this is a propositional country, this is not a country that is based upon a particular religion, this is not a country that is based upon a particular ethnicity or race or whatever any of those things they're all irrelevant. This is a country that is based on certain propositions, which we find in the Declaration of Independence of the Constitution. Okay, fine. What happens when a large majority of your population doesn't understand those propositions or is antagonistic to those propositions?
0: What happens?
1: And the country fails. But it's the thing that's holding the country up and not all these other religion, ethnicity, because you have countries that are based on religion so the Muslim countries, right? If it's based on propositions and enough of the people don't believe in those propositions and, in fact, are working against those propositions, then the fundamental foundational structure of the country has to collapse. And then what follows? Uh, we get a government that looks like Brazil or Venezuela? Is that what's going to happen? Maybe. Well, continues. no, but the question is, my question would be: Is there anyone in this country now, including the illegal immigrants who came from, Belgium, I mean, they came to escape Venezuela, all right? They came to escape uh, Argentina, whatever. That want this? If you proposed it to all the people in this country, here's the here's the consequence of continuing on the course that we're on now with illegal immigration. Our country will, in ten years, fifteen years, whatever, look like. Venezuela politically and then economically. And you put that even to the illegal aliens. Would they say, oh, great, that's why we came here, so that we could continue to live in Venezuela? None of them would agree. That's how, if I may use the vernacular, that's how screwed up this country is that you have large segments of the population, the illegal population and the legal population, which is in support of massive integration, who do not realize what the consequence of this is. And if you put it to them and you said, this is what's going to happen, more likely than not, they would all say no.
0: All right. I want to ask you something. This brings us to the living constitution argument and oh, stance oh goodness is right was it cass sunstein am i saying his name right who uh was for or has been for the constitution being used as a living changing morphing thing that could be reinterpreted differently depending which day it is i mean i'm i don't mean to mis uh misstate what he said but in essence that's the essence of what he put forth. I want you to speak to before we end this. It's we're we're almost at two hours. I would like you to speak to, to the best of your ability. What is the problem with a if there is one with a with a different interpretation of the Constitution being called the living Constitution, and what it what are the ramifications of this? If not what I already said, but in in your translation.
1: Well, it's very many uh, law professors and uh, legal so-called scholars, they call themselves scholars, who uh, adopt this or promote this concept of the living constitution. living constitution basically says that provisions of the constitution, no matter what they meant, and no matter that we can actually pin down their meaning at the time the constitution was ratified, We have to allow those words and phrases to change in their meanings to fit modern perception of what we want or what ought to be. We've we've changed our our views economically. We've changed our views politically. And we want the Constitution to conform to these changes. Well, we actually have a provision to do that. It's called the Amendment Provision, Article 5. If our political views, economic views that would be uh, embodied in the Constitution have changed, We can amend the Constitution. That's why it's there. So Article 5 tells you that a living Constitution, in the sense that I've just described it, is improper. We don't change definitions in the Constitution. We change the Constitution and put new definitions in it through the amendment process. Why? So that everyone could see what's going on. So that it's not some kind of surreptitious trick that's being performed by the lawyers and the courts slowly but surely, in changing a phrase in an opinion that gives a different result than using the original language of the Constitution. And if you look at this concept, who, would, who in his right mind would ever ratify a living Constitution? I mean, the people in the ratifying convention well, I know what the Constitution means now, but what you're telling me is that 10 years from now, it will mean something else, and I don't know what that will be. And you can't even tell me what that will be because it will be the matter of the so-called evolution. And so I may find 10 years from now that the document that I thought was to my benefit when I ratified it back then has now been transmogrified by this process of evolution into something that is completely antagonistic to what I want. I'm not going to sign this thing to begin with. It's ridiculous. We have no such concept in statutory law. There's no such thing as a living statute that changes its meaning over time. We have no such thing in contract law. There's no such thing as a living contract that changes its meaning over time, depending on what one party wants it to do. All right. Now, there is a legitimate concept for a living constitution in the sense that certain terms are so compendious. That they can take in different activities or different items. Think the word commerce. Power of Congress to regulate commerce with foreign nations among the several states and the Indian tribes. Commerce is a word relating to trade and business, business intercourse. So commerce among the several states involved at that time, transportation of goods across state lines. And how did they do that? On horseback, in ox carts, sometimes by sailing ships, by rowboats and canals. Eventually they got what? Railroads. Eventually we ended up with motor cars. Eventually we ended up with steam ships. Eventually we ended up with airplanes. All of those are implements of commerce. There's no way that you would say that an airplane is not as much an implement of commerce as an ox cart. It's just a technological advance. But it certainly comes within the word commerce, as commerce would have been defined then, and as the founding fathers would have said if they had had airplanes. Similarly, Second Amendment talks about the right of the people to keep arms. What kind of arms? The arms that would be useful for a militia. What kind of arms might those be? Arms to repel invasions, arms to suppress insurrections, arms to execute laws. Just take repel invasions. What arms did they have to repel invasions when the Constitution was written? Flintlock muskets, flintlock rifles. We're talking about infantry arms, right? What kind of arms do we have today? Well, they're much more advanced, but they are still arms in that concept. They're technologically different, but they fit into this definition of arms. Our problem is that we're going and the the living Constitution people are going and taking various concepts and changing them entirely. Let's take Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, no state without the consent of Congress. Well, I know what consent means. I know what it meant then. Maybe they're going to try and change that today. Well, the consent of Congress can kind of be interpolated from various things. Congress doesn't have to say it. We can kind of guess that they did it because of these other things that they, these other statutes that they, passed. really? Is that what we're going to do now? And change the meaning of that word? Consent is not the dictionary definition that it may have had at the time the Constitution was written. It's some kind of, uh, I don't know, philosophical or whatever definition that we're now going to apply. There's the difficulty. Why is the why is this living constitution? Why has it become popular among certain segments of the legal intelligentsia, the lawyers and the court? Because it allows them to change the constitution without amendment. They don't have to go to the people, the states in particular, and say, this is the specific way we want to change the constitution. These are the reasons. This is the language we're going to use. Now vote on it. And we're going to need the supermajority of Article 5, right? 3 fourths of the states, 75% of the states who agree to it, whereas if we kind of subterraneously slip in these new interpretations of words and phrases, usually in the course of judicial opinions. We can change over time the meaning of the Constitution, and 99.999% of the population will never see that. They will never understand it. And, of course, the population that didn't understand it 50 years ago, well, they're dead, most of them. And we have a new generation that's been brought up under what? Under this new interpretation, which in the law schools they're reading in their constitutional law course. They're being taught of this new interpretation. The old interpretation disappears. The new interpretation is used. There hasn't been an amendment of the Constitution by three quarters of the states. The whole thing has been run by a legal judicial elite, which seems to think it knows better for all the rest of us. It's a trick they're playing. It's always a trick that they've played. All right? And you can go through example after example in the interpretation of the Constitution and see this done. And they get away with it. And then within 20 years, 30 years, it's accepted because the opponents of what one of what originally happened, they're all gone. They're dead. They're retired. They've lost their influence or whatever. So it's
0: the long game. And The
1: newly educated group is willing to accept what they're being spoon fed out of the universities, out of the law schools, out of the new judicial opinions. This is the game that's played. And as I say, nobody gets away with this in terms of a statute. I've never ever heard of a doctrine of a living statute. I've never heard of a (laughs) doctrine of a living contract because everyone realizes that would be stupid beyond belief. And yet, is a statute more important than the Constitution? Is a private contract more important than the Constitution? You see what a trick has been played on people. The most important part of their legal system is subject to this kind of Backroom manipulation, and they are willing to accept it. Something that they would never accept if they were looking at a statute, or if they were, especially if they were looking at a contract of which they were one of the signatories. No one would sign a contract where the other party says, Well, this is a living contract, and the terms are going to change depending on how I feel about it over the next four or five years. Am I going to sign that contract? Of course not. No rational person would sign that contract. So it's a trick that's played. And one of, the, one of the ways they get away with this is in the law schools, and I know this happened at Harvard because I was there, when they teach constitutional law, do they systematically go through the Constitution looking at the primary definitions of terms and phrases as they were understood at the time? Oh, no. In Harvard Law School, we never had an assignment to sit down and read the entire Constitution and then in a couple of sessions To go through various provisions and have interaction with the instructor about what those provisions meant. Oh no, we started right off reading what? Interpretations of the Constitution in opinions of the Supreme Court, which didn't necessarily have, as I discovered very quickly, very much to do with the Constitution. They had a lot to do with what the Supreme Court wanted to have the Constitution appear to be, but they didn't necessarily have much to do with what the Constitution Really was, and that's our difficulty in so many areas. Commerce is a classic example of this, right? The commerce says to regulate commerce. The Supreme Court said, "Well, that means to regulate what affects commerce." Wait a minute. Where's the word "affect"? Is that in the Constitution? No. Invented by the Supreme Court. Well, what affects commerce? The amount of wheaties that I eat every morning affects commerce. If I eat more wheaties. The Wheaties company makes more money. If I eat less Wheaties, they make less money. And that's, you know, multiplied by the number of people who do or do not eat Wheaties. So are the amount of Wheaties that I every that I eat every day, because that affects commerce, subject to regulation by Congress? Can Congress tell me how many bowls of Wheaties I have to eat? every week and how large those bowls have to be because that affects commerce? And if the answer is no, I ask, why not? If the power, as the Supreme Court says, is the power to affect commerce and my bowls of Wheaties affect commerce, why then can Congress not regulate my bowls of Wheaties? And anyone would look at that and say, well, that's an absurd argument. And And yet that's the situation we now have. And I give you the example, there's a famous case, Wickard versus Filburn. This was in the Roosevelt administration. They had acreage allotments. You could grow only so much wheat. That was his case. You could grow only so much wheat for the marketplace because they wanted to reduce the amount of wheat that was grown and raise the price of wheat, get over the depression. So Wickard, he's a farmer and he grows more wheat than he was allotted to grow. So they go after him, say you're violating these agricultural regulations. And Wicket says, well, wait a minute. I'm taking some of this wheat and feeding it to my cows. I never put on the market more than my allotment of wheat. The excess goes to my cows. And they said it doesn't make any difference. If you didn't feed those cows, you would have to buy that wheat from somebody else or some other kind of grain to feed the cows. You're still... Growing too much wheat. End of discussion. (laughs) Well, he lost that case. Wow. All right. That's one of the more famous cases in how far the Commerce Clause has been stretched. And the Commerce Clause, of course, is not the only provision that has been stretched, it's just the most extreme example of it. All right. Or, Or concepts such as the Environmental Protection Agency, as an example. Where in the Constitution is there authority for Congress? to protect the environment, whatever that means. Well, is that somehow related to commerce? The environment is related to commerce. Congress can regulate commerce. Therefore, Congress can regulate the protection of the environment. Therefore, And on and on we go to the amount of CO2 that's in the glaciers. I mean, how far does this go? And the answer is, as far as the commerce power goes, Congress says, well, that power is unlimited. We can't imagine anything that couldn't be regulated under the Congress power, basically speaking, when you read their opinions. They find no limitation at all. Well, is that what the the framers would look at that one provision of the Constitution says, well, that gives Congress this immense power to regulate the number of bowls of whatever (laughs) people were eating of cereal oatmeal that a, a farmer in Massachusetts is eating every day. Would the, would the, I mean, you look at that, some of these opinions, would the framers of the, Madison, as for instance, would James Madison, by any stretch of the imagination, oh, no problem, we're going to give Congress that level of power? I can't imagine anyone who was in the group called the founders, and they were in the state conventions as well as in the federal convention, who would have looked at a modern interpretation of the Constitution and said anything but, if that's what this means, I'm voting against this Constitution, I'm not going to ratify this. That one provision, if that's what this means, I'm not going to vote for this. I refuse to vote for this. That's a, they didn't have the word, our word would be, that's a totalitarian, they would call it tyrannical. That's a tyrannical government. This is why people have issues
0: with lawyers. No offense that you're a lawyer, but this is why people have issues with lawyers. And it seems as if a culture of lawyers has subsumed, wait a minute, (laughs) seems that a culture of lawyers And the legal field has subsumed and infiltrated and changed the translation and the meaning of the Constitution. How else could this happen?
1: You couldn't be more right. That's exactly what happened. You had the lawyers and the law schools, especially Harvard Law School, Thayer, a man by the name of Thayer, promoted the case law system. where we're supposed to pay attention to what the courts say in their opinions. As opposed to going back and trying to figure out what the Constitution means without ever looking at a court opinion,
0: isn't that, that what you learned also at Harvard? I think you told me in calling in the Constitution that we did together that's special in twenty twenty. Yeah, it was case method. It was yet, case that method. you learn you learned about their opinions, but they didn't teach you the Constitution. Is that correct? Yeah,
1: if you if you look at the early days, there were treatises written. Story writes one, Justice Story. Just story on the Constitution, where they go through and they look at the decision at the provisions of the Constitution and say what these mean given the history and the language and so forth and so on. And then after the Civil War develops this concept of the case method. Instead of treating the Constitution in and of itself, they say, Well, we're going to look at opinions of the Supreme Court. We're going to use And the British common law system and the Constitution will really mean what the courts say it means. Well, who does that help? Well, of course, it helps the lawyers. Now, the lawyers become an elite group because the lawyers are the ones who are going to interpret the Constitution. The lawyers are the ones who are going to argue before the courts. The lawyers are the ones who are going to be the judges. So the lawyers now become the controlling element in this situation. The Constitution means what the lawyers argue, what the lawyers claim, what the courts say in their opinions. And it can be completely different from what the Constitution actually means. See, the Commerce Clause is an example of this. And so it's what I would call legal imperialism. Imperialism by the law profession, imperialism by the legal intellectuals in the law schools, and then this is uh, implemented through the judicial system. And that's what we have today. That's why people say, oh, the Supreme Court is supreme. It's going to tell us what the Constitution is, and we have to believe it right or wrong, no matter how ridiculous the opinion is. We have to accept this as the meaning of the Constitution. And there's nothing we can do about it until some other case comes to the Supreme Court. And for whatever reason, the Constitution is interpreted in a different fashion by that particular court. And one looks at that and says, well, that's absurd on the face of it. The Constitution can't change its meaning depending on who's on the court. It has to have a meaning that it originally had otherwise it could never have been rationally ratified people that don't know imagine the constitution appeared and it was all written in sanskrit <laughs> or some other language all right hebrew maybe but i don't know maybe your founding fathers probably did read hebrew all right uh, because they were biblical scholars maybe Aramaic. it was written in, <laughs> it was written in sanskrit or it was written in, in uh chinese okay. chinese calligraphy all right <laughs> And the founding father, oh, look at that. Well, we don't know what this means. We, we don't know what language this is. All right, but we're going to agree to it. We're going to ratify this. Come on now. Really? You look at that possibility and say, Well, that's that's impossible to imagine. No rational person would agree to signing a legal document with all the effects of that signature when he didn't know what it meant. And that's what the living Constitution tells us. These people really didn't know what it meant because what it meant 50 years from now, from then, would be different. And then 50 years from then, it would be different again. And 50 years again, it would be different. You mean the, the assumption is the media. assumption
0: of the living constitution culture is that the founders, you know, didn't know what they were saying?
1: Well, they didn't know where it would go. OK, they knew, let's assume they knew what it was saying at the moment they signed it. But according to the living constitution, 10 seconds later, it could be different. Can you imagine if contracts
0: were like that? That would be a
1: disaster. Well, that's what I say. Nobody is <laughs> to mind if you have a contract. You propose this in law school, in the contract class. We have a thing called the living contract. Even the students would laugh
0: at you. <laughs> Wait, Edwin, I think it would be at the end of this whole thing. It's called the living disaster.
1: <laughs> well, that's the consequence of it. You see what's happened. It has been. It's a chaos now. Because you can argue back and forth. What lawyers do is they go and they pick and they choose where there isn't a very specific court opinion exactly on the issue. They will pick and they will choose among various court opinions that sort of swim around the periphery and argue that this one you should follow, justice, you should follow this one, but you don't want to follow this one. And maybe you should look at this one, but don't look at that one. Pick and choose. And then we'll put this together in some kind of mosaic that fits the interests of our particular clients. And then the judges will decide which mosaic to accept based on their own maybe legal study, maybe their own political positions, whatever. Not necessarily going back and saying, wait a minute, let's look at the exact meaning of the Constitution when it was ratified and try to bring that up to date in the sense of how does that meaning apply to this situation? That is not necessarily what is done. In many cases, exactly the opposite. In fact, in many cases, they say exactly the opposite that they're going to do. This, is chilling. This is, as as
0: this, is, this is chilling. this what is chilling. What is your, where are you at? No, very few people on earth stand where you stand, know what you know. The inner workings, details, nuances, dynamics, interpretations, translations, meanings of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and the Declaration of Independence. You're standing at the last part of your lifetime. Okay. What did they say? The last 25 years, right? Unless you live to be over less 100. Than okay.
1: Well, less, than, you know, less God, than that, probably.
0: I hope not. I hope you can go more, way more. And you're standing here with over 50 years in the realm. What what do you see happening with with uh, obviously with the issue of our focus today, which is on immigration and state and states rights and the Constitution? What do you see unfolding as a give the audience an opportunity to kind of vision with you what would be the best case scenario?
1: Oh, well, I don't know if there is any best case scenario. I mean, there's a possibility of incremental improvements. But the difficulty is that there are so many things that need to be improved or restored or removed, if you will, from this system uh, that it would take so much time. I and mean, if you look at the judicial system alone and so many opinions that are wrong, the supreme court and that have led to terrifically bad consequences those can be changed in most instances solely by another opinion of the supreme court that reverses them well think about how much litigation that would be say you you could pick a hundred supreme court decisions that were wrong in the past going back as far back as you want to go and i say well we're going to need to because they're all separate issues we're going to need 100 cases litigated and all of them coming to the Supreme Court for the Supreme Court to recognize these errors and reverse their decisions over a period of time in which what? The court only takes a certain number of cases each year, so you probably can't get all 100 of these litigated and have them hit, heard in the same year. Situation where the composition of the court changes more or less over this period of time, get better or worse justices in which maybe some of these cases would not be properly litigated at all. But what I happens,
0: you what's your, what's your, I'm sorry to interject here, but I, we're getting to the end of this particular segment, but. Well, that's I, what I'm just saying. Yeah, that's I why just,
1: it's so difficult with just looking at the Supreme court. Okay. Well, Look, looking at, looking at the statutory system. Yes. In Congress. You can go and change statutes fairly quickly, but you have to have the necessary majorities in Congress. People who understand what needs to be done, and then how to write the statutes properly.
0: That's a whole other field, isn't it? That's a whole. Yeah, and, then,
1: other and then there's the administrative agencies. You have, this government is totally corrupted from a constitutional point of view by the administrative agencies, which in essence control the policy of the government outside of real supervision by Congress or the courts. And most of those agencies, the large percentage of what they do is probably at least questionably unconstitutional, let alone obviously unconstitutional. So all of that has to be rolled back. That's a daunting process in its own.
0: And for immigration? Excuse me? And with regard to immigration...
1: Oh, immigration, I think, I think immigration is simple because the the statutes on the books now provide a good basis for controlling immigration if they were enforced, and the physical control of the border can be accomplished, whether by the states themselves or by you know, the executive branch of the government, or the two of, I would hope the two of them in cooperation but it's not being done for political reasons it's not a question of the legalities of that it's a question of the political will of these various levels of government to do it and what and what perhaps malign political goals they have for not doing it but look the the the, the mass of people in this country are becoming thoroughly fed up with this illegal immigration invasion even in places like new york Chicago, whatever, the California. Sanctuary, California, they're fed up with this. Now, their politicians maybe aren't. Maybe the governors of Illinois and, and Massachusetts and New York are still willing to cling to the position that they've taken in favor of illegal immigration. But the pressure coming from the average citizen of those localities is going to continue to mount over and over again, especially because they can't pay for the consequences of illegal immigration. Now, there's an economic consequence here that the people are simply unwilling or unable to pay for. And they are going to demand that this thing be rolled back. And then, of course, you're going to have a complete reversal in the electoral process, one would hope, in some or all of those localities and get people into office who are willing to take the appropriate steps. The question is, how, much, how long is this going to take?
0: It See, it looks like it needs, it looks like whatever needs to happen, it needs to happen
1: yesterday. Well, I have a, a pessimistic view because I think if the Democrats win in uh, 2024, right, this election, and they get control, maintain control of, of the White House and probably gain control of, the, of, the, of Congress, and not that saying I'm necessarily for, for Mr. Trump but just the, Republic, the Democrats that we have in now and the, and the directions they have been consistently taking with this issue, it will get worse. They are wedded to unlimited immigration for whatever reason. I don't want to go into you know, the, 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 the motives here. They are wedded to that, and they will carry that out to the bitter end. Four more years of that, the country will be unrecognizable.
0: Dr. Edwin Vera, how do people reach you?
1: Oh, well, they can uh, contact me. My address is uh, at the end of my News with Views uh, archive.
0: Newswithviews.com or .org? Uh,
1: Newswithviews.com.
0: It is a pleasure and an honor to know you, uh, to have done special segments with you, and I'm so happy that you're alive and alive at this time in human history because it feels to me like your entire life has been prepared to be here at this time in the United States history. To be who you are, to do what you do, to say what you say, and to facilitate whatever people, whether they're in Congress, whether in the Senate, whether governors, whether they're mayors, that you can help the people that are not going to have the time to like you have over 50 years to know the breadth and the depth and the trajectory and the, and the essentials of the Constitution the way you do. God bless you. Thank you so much, Dr. Edwin Vera. Well,
1: you're welcome. I just, I, I just hope that I can inspire people to think about these issues.
0: I That's think you've more than, more than inspired people to think. I'm inspired even right now. It's rain making time. It's rain making time, Edwin Vera. It's rain time. Thank you. Thank you.